Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm April Glazer. And I'm Will Oremus. Hi, everyone. Welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We're recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, November 21st. On today's show, we'll talk about the changes to net neutrality rules that came to light today. We'll also talk a little bit about the digital media bubble, and if that's a real thing. April will tell us about her experience bringing Google into her living room for a week. Later on, we have a Black Friday special for you. We'll talk with Brian Krebs, an expert on cybercrime, about everything retailers and consumers should know before the big day. And lastly, don't close my tabs, our picks for the best of the web this week. Will, how are you? I'm doing great. It is 80 degrees today in Santa Barbara, California. How are you, April? I'm jealous because I think it's just in the 60s here. And to me, that's quite cold <laughs> in the Bay Area. I'm sure everyone, everyone on the East Coast or, or in the middle of the country that's listening to us is grimacing right now. <laughs> We're sorry. Um, so, Will, as always, so much happening this week. But what, uh, what, would it, what are you writing about? What really, what really caught your eye? All right. So this is going to turn the mood a little more somber, at least for me as a digital journalist. But there has basically become a consensus over the past few days that something is wrong in online media. And the evidence for that is that we're seeing we're seeing sort of two things happen at once, I think. One is that two of the brightest stars in online media, BuzzFeed and Vice, these are companies that have attracted lots of investment. They've been making lots of money. They've been growing really fast. Um, they're kind of, you know, they're kind of the models that everybody looks to for how do you make money with, uh, with news and journalism and content online. They both missed their revenue targets by a wide margin, according to a report in the Wall Street Journal last week. At the same time, some of the sort of mid-tier online publications that have tried to save their business by doing what is has come to be known as the pivot to video. That is, they have done less. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're chuckling at just, at just the phrase because it has sort of become a punchline. The idea was that, uh, you know, okay, maybe you can't make money selling display ads on a, a news website, but maybe if we did a bunch of video content and did video ads, then we could make money. So a whole bunch of media companies have tried this in the past year. You get Mashable, MTV News, Mike, Uproxx, the list goes on. And one by one, uh, they are all coming back to, in various ways, they're all coming back to report. Ah, yeah, it did. that didn't really work. Mashable sold last week for one-fifth of the valuation that had been given just a year earlier um, to Ziff Davis, which is a, a trade publication company. Um, so it's, it's a grim time in online media. And the question that this raises to me is, what if this whole model, what if, what if this like whole big idea that we can uh, give news away for free online and pay for it by selling ads... What if that was just like a wrong turn? Maybe maybe we maybe that won't work. I mean, it seems like they've been really good at at least getting investors to buy into it, right? But it, but it hasn't gone past that. It, it, they were able to sustain themselves for a while, but was that mostly on investment money or was that on some amount of ad money that was coming in? 
Yeah, I think it's different case by case. But but there was that point that you raised was was made by Josh Marshall, who who runs um, Talking Points Memo, the, the liberal mm. politics blog and, and network of blogs. And he was saying, you know, look, it, it, things haven't seemed that bad so far because venture capitalists were pumping money into this ecosystem. You know, they were propping up companies like Mike and Mashable that were promising to, to do different things and try new bets to make a bunch of money. If they start pulling out, all of a sudden, everybody's going to realize, you know, it's like it's like the game. Of, of musical chairs and there's just not as many chairs as there are digital media outlets. Everybody's going to realize that the amount of advertising money to go to go around is not enough to support all the media outlets that are out there. And the big reason for that is the the Facebook Google duopoly. I mean, these two companies are sucking up more and more of the share of all online advertising spending, and and so there's less to go around for all these other publications that you see on the web. So one thing that really scares me about all of these uh, newsrooms being shut down is that it's also including uh, a small subset of local online-only publications. And so I'm thinking here of Gothamist and, and DNA Info. And that seems like that like losing that local journalism is going to be a huge disservice to the people that depended on it to you know participate in local politics. Yeah, I think you've hit on the real tragedy here. I mean, the, the big national newspapers, the Washington Post and the New York Times, have found ways to diversify their revenue streams. They're finally getting people to pay for their products online. But it's really the local newspapers that have, have just been gutted by the shift to to online media. And it's really sad to see these startups that were meant to try to start to fill some of those gaps to see those shut down. Now, with DNA Info and Gothamist, there was some indication that it was in response to a union drive by employees. Nevertheless, it's a big loss. And and I think local journalism is, you know, continues now to feel the worst effects of this shift. All right. But on a potentially happier note, maybe not. You told me last week, April, that you were going to invite the Google Home voice speaker into your house and you're going to try it out. I've been so curious to know, how did that go? I did it. I tried it out. Setting it up alone was very difficult. Using it, I... I just didn't like it, honestly. I didn't have a lot of uses for it. Um, I'll say from the get-go, I, I do use a lot of Apple products from my computer to my phone. And, uh, and you know, even just downloading the Google app, I, you do have to integrate a lot of your different accounts. And, and I kept stopping and putting it down for a few hours and just felt it to be kind of, you know, one more obnoxious thing to set up. Once I did get it set up, though, I didn't find it that useful. So what did you try to use it for? So my initial response, it's been raining uh, here in the, the Bay Area over the past few days, which doesn't happen often. And I wanted to know when it was going to stop raining, right? So, so I could, uh, you know, leave leave my house with uh, with less layers on. And it couldn't tell me that. It said I'm still working on, you know, improving myself. And it just told me that it was raining. And I was like, well, I see it's raining. But, you know, when I went to the um, look at the weather on the Internet, I was able to to actually see when it was going to stop raining. And I actually thought that that was way more useful than than asking this um, this little robot coaster that I had in my kitchen. I also used it to listen to the radio, um, which I thought, you know, worked fine. But I also... Uh, didn't ha- so one thing I love about listening to the radio is that I listen to the radio around my house. You know, I'll listen to the, to NPR like a like a, a someone born in the wrong decade with a radio in every room of my house blasting <laughs> blasting the news. And uh, with the Google Home, I I, I couldn't move uh, like that. And I guess the idea is that you'll have one in every room of your house, but but I was just not set up that way, and uh, and and I, I I found it not not useful. Uh, Another thing, I wanted to ask you about this. So, Will, you use a Google Home, right? 
Yeah, I have a Google Home. I had the the Amazon Echo for a little while. I decided okay. to try out the Google one. So the thing that actually um, I liked the least, and I know I don't really have anything good to say, it's because I just didn't find it that useful other than the fact that it worked as like a speaker, um, is, uh, is that I had to say, hey, Google, to get it to turn on. So I'm like hanging out in my kitchen cooking, and the last thing I want to do is address this mega corporation uh, <laughs> you know, in the course of 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 cooking or, or or you know talking to somebody, um, and it just seemed like such a huge disruption to like be reminded of Google's presence in my house. I was just like, oh my god, hey Google, uh, <laughs> yeah, I just didn't want to say it, it. Yeah, it feels super awkward, and it's funny because I've actually gotten after the companies that name their digital voice assistants uh, that give their their digital voice assistants these human fem- mm-hmm. almost always female names. Um, it it both feels sexist and also sort of personifies this software in a way that feels dangerous to me. It's like they're trying to, you know, become your best friend and insinuate their way into your life. On the other hand, having tried saying "Hey Google" uh, many times a day, it it is really awkward, and it and it does really call to you know it does really call your mind to the fact that you're sharing everything you say with this giant corporation in Silicon Valley. Right, like I might be addicted to Twitter, and but I don't want to say like, "Hey Twitter, show me how <laughs> how addicted you I am," or I might be addicted to my iPhone, but I don't say like, "Hey Apple." Let's uh let's 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 bury ourselves in this phone a little longer. And so uh, I I really didn't like that relationship. But other people might like it. Who knows? This was just my interaction with it. But I'm glad I tried it out because I've been curious for a long time. Yeah, I, I should say I actually do find these smart speakers really useful. Both both the Echo and the Google Home, especially with a toddler in the house. You know, you're you're cooking dinner. Your hands are full. Your kid is sitting there at the table impatiently waiting for something to eat, and you can just say, "Hey Google, play Old MacDonald Had a Farm," and then all of a sudden he's delighted and entertained for a few minutes. Um, th- that said, I mean, I also think it's it's really interesting just as a way of keeping tabs on the state of our artificial intelligence. I mean, you know, seeing what questions Google can't answer. And what questions it can answer to me is a fascinating way to measure the march of, of robots into our lives. All right, and now on to the big news of the week, net neutrality. The news being that SEC Chairman Ajit Pai has moved toward repealing the net neutrality rules that were instated in 2015. April, can you tell us what's going on here? So today, right before I hopped on to do this podcast, uh, Chairman Pai shared with the uh, other commissioners at the FCC his draft of uh, new rules that will, you're right, effectively rescind uh, the net neutrality rules that were passed in 2015. And for our listeners who aren't like super familiar with what net neutrality is, although I'm sure most people are if they're listening to our podcast. And if not, welcome to the concept of net neutrality. It's the idea. Well, I think a lot of us like to like a lot of us pretend we know what net neutrality is, even if we really don't. So I think you should briefly, briefly break it down for us. Sure. Yeah. No, net neutrality is the idea that all traffic that uh, that happens online, usually through an internet service provider that you pay, like Comcast or Verizon or AT&T, should be treated equally. And so the idea is that without net neutrality, you know, Comcast or Verizon or AT&T could charge your website to reach users at faster speeds. And that effectively makes a fast lane and a slow lane because if, you know, one website loads faster than another website, then people will probably navigate to that faster loading website because we're impatient. Um, but also what it does is it allows uh, internet service providers to kind of collect a two-way toll. So they're making money 
from users who are paying every month for a subscription. And then they're also making money from websites that are paying to reach those users at faster speeds. And so what we essentially get is some tiered internet where speeds are throttled depending on where you're going. And it's very different than the internet that we have now. Yeah, but all these metaphors, all these traffic metaphors, just rem- like they make me feel like I'm sitting in some horrible traffic jam on the New Jersey Turnpike or something. Um, and I'm also having flashbacks to 2014, which is when we last had this big debate. April, your really good story in Slate about this today was headlined, the FCC is officially about to repeal net neutrality. Is the internet as we know it over? <laughs> that does sound bad. Convince me that the internet we know it is over because... Um, you know, as you know, the there was the principle of net neutrality was not enshrined by the FCC prior to 2015, uh, and you know the internet seemed to grow and thrive in many ways. Why now that they're repealing it? Why is it all of a sudden going to go to hell in a handbasket? It's a good question, and and the truth is that there were net neutrality rules on the books before uh, 2015. It's just that they weren't written in a way that could really stick or that weren't like legally stuck, and so they were challenged in court um, and. Uh, with with a with a case, and then uh, and then the FCC was tasked to actually make rules that can stick, and that required uh, kind of retooling the law a little bit to classify the internet as an entity that is eligible for a heavier type of regulation than it was before. And and that was not a heavy lift. That took you know over a year. It, uh, millions of people commented to the FCC. But, you know, back to your original question, which is how will this kind of ruin the internet as we know it? I think it's really important to to remember the promise of the internet, right? It's this idea that a thousand flowers will bloom, that if you have a rad idea or a website or want to start a local blog, you can do it and anybody can see it. And, you know, there's 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 no limit to the possibilities that that, that can occur and, and, and how innovative we can be. And it was just this open playing field. Net neutrality helps to enshrine that, helps to make sure that that's the case, right? It helps to ensure that 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 blog that uh, that that talented, you know, local, you know, citizen journalist creates actually gets seen by a ton of people. And then that person can maybe skyrocket to uh, to, to stardom as a, as a famous journalist just because they started writing on their own. Without net neutrality, that possibility is going to be a lot harder. Yeah. And so, all right. So net neutrality is, is interesting in, in so many ways. But one of them to me is that sort of all the smart, you know, deep thinking tech people I know, including you, April, are really, really, really in favor of net neutrality and really against the idea of, of rolling it back so much so that I, that I almost don't really hear the argument. Uh, in, in favor of repealing it. That is, I don't, I don't really hear the argument that uh, FCC chair Ajit Pai made in the Wall Street Journal today. Um, but I think, as I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the argument basically is this. It is getting more and more expensive. You know, people are using more and more data. And as the current system stands, uh, broadband companies are not properly incentivized to build out their networks in ways that would accommodate our massive increase in data usage because they can't charge you know more for uh, you know us to to watch streaming video on Netflix or or you know they can't um, roll out a plan that would allow you to save money if you don't use the internet that much um, and so the result is basically that we all get worse service um, than we would if we allowed these companies to to uh, implement tiered pricing schemes I mean we see 
multi-tiered pricing schemes mm-hmm. as a good thing in some other aspects of life. You know, there are a lot of there are a lot of arenas in which a tiered pricing scheme is not a bad thing. But why is it so? You know, why is it so bad on the internet? And and what faith do we have that these companies are going to invest to make our internet work properly, even as we suck up more and more data if they can't sort of charge people extra for using a lot of it? So I think the argument that they need to make more money to invest in their networks is kind of ridiculous. I think what they need to make more money in order to do is to increase their profit margins. <laughs> and uh, they need to make more money in order so that they can make more money, right? But if they wanted to, you know, use the money that they already have to keep their networks up to date and to make sure that they're providing service for everybody at like a basic level, um, then they would do that. If they wanted to invest in upgrading their networks, then they would do that. And the truth is, is that they are doing that, right? They are investing in their networks. And yes, Pi uh, argued in the Wall Street Journal today that, you know, the reason why it's important to take these rules back is so that we can help these companies man- you know, maintain their profitability. Um, but the truth is, is that when I went back and listened to their investor calls that they have every quarter, uh, they they were telling their investors that since the net neutrality rules passed, these were calls that happened after 2015, that they were investing in their network infrastructure and that they they were expanding their networks and that the the regulations weren't preventing them from doing that. And they all, you know, AT&T, Verizon and Comcast all said this to their investors. And so to make the argument that that they need this extra influx of cash in order to improve their network is just not the same thing that they're telling people who who are invested in the companies. Uh, you know, I think that Pi's uh, inclination to roll back net neutrality is more uh, about not wanting to have regulations in general. It's more an ideological stance than it is one that we actually see, you know, reflected in terms of something that will improve the market. Yeah, th- this this is something that occurred to me. I mean, some I saw on Twitter somebody was saying, well, how can these people call themselves conservatives, um, you know, if they're against sort of, a, you know, a free and open internet? And it occurred to me that, that free really means, I think, different things to liberals and conservatives in a case like this. I mean, when liberals think of a free internet, we think of something that is open and fair, and it's a level playing field that everybody can have access to. But when conservatives these days think of free, they just think of unregulated. You know, it's it's an atmosphere where the government stays out of the way and lets the the invisible hand of the market sort things out. Um, But let me ask you one more question. Isn't isn't the real problem here the lack of competition in broadband Mm -hmm. markets? Because if we had, if we really had a competitive broadband market, and one carrier started discriminating against certain services in a way that people felt was unfair, then presumably it would lose out and people would just switch to the other carrier that isn't, you know, that isn't screwing over the little guy or getting a lot of bad press for prioritizing its own services in terms of, uh, of who it allows to, whose traffic it allows to go through. When there are so few players, yes, it's very easy uh, for two companies to just kind of naturally control the prices without necessarily sitting in a room together saying that they're going to keep jacking it up. It's just that if one charges more, another can charge more in return. Uh, and that's the way these monopolies work. I, I I would say that if we did have a healthier marketplace, then um, – then, you know, hopefully people would be given more options. And, and if they don't like the fact that their internet service provider is, is throttling speeds to certain websites, then they could take their business elsewhere. But people don't actually have those choices. And so when we talk about not regulating uh, these companies, we're basically saying that they can control how people can and cannot access information because it's not like folks have the option to vote with their wallet here. All right, and and this is this is all you've you've persuaded me somewhat that this is really depressing. Um, and 
I just wanted to offer one more hope for the future, which is, I mean, maybe having these net neutrality rules set by the FCC was not really sustainable in the first place. I mean, that's something that that could change with any new administration. Is the real is the real lesson here that this needs to be something that, that's done through Congress? Uh, it would be great if Congress took action to codify these principles so that way we could be sure that our access to information is not um, completely, you know, driven by who's willing to pay to to to, to get our attention. Um, but uh, Congress doesn't seem good at doing much of anything these days. So I, I, I wouldn't put my eggs in that basket. Uh, I, I will say, though, that a point that you kind of alluded to is, is just how difficult it is to to have these rules in the first place or, or whether or not they'll actually stick. And it's less about the civics of it. It's less about the regulatory agency versus Congress having strong rules that can be repealed or be undone. And it's more about the fact that the internet is a network of networks. And there are so many places where discrimination can happen, regardless of whether or not it's the speed in which we connect to a website. You know, and so... Whether it's how, you know, websites peer with each other to exchange data or all of these different points of information exchange that we can't see that happens under the hood um, that uh, that companies can can toy with to uh, to force things in their favor or to get more money out of the companies that depend on their pipelines. Okay, it's time for a short break. When we come back, we'll have our interview with cybersecurity expert Brian Krebs. Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Our guest today is Brian Krebs. He's an independent investigative journalist who specializes in cybercrime. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, Spam Nation, the inside story of organized cybercrime from global epidemic to your front door. Just a note to our listeners, we used Skype for our last interview, so it might sound a little choppy at time, but it's a great interview. Uh, Brian, thank you so much for joining us. It's it's really exciting to have you. have been following your work for so long. Oh, thanks for having me. Great. Well, uh, you know, as you know, uh, Black Friday is coming up the day after Thanksgiving, and that's a time when Americans like to go shopping. And and now shopping usually means there's some sort of digital transaction involved. And so we wanted to talk to you uh, about kind of what people should be weary of or, or what's happened in the past with that. When you hear about millions and millions of people, you know, rushing to stores with their their credit cards uh, or, or buying things online. What's the first thing that comes to mind? Is it a large data breach that could be, go wrong? Or is it per- someone personally being hacked? Mm. Well, I guess it depends on if we're talking about uh, individuals or groups of individuals, right? Um, uh, from an individual level, I would say that one of the biggest risks is people are in such a hurry. They are in they uh, that 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 sort of they they let their guard down in a, in a, in a sense, right? They're um, 
they're they're trying to take advantage of, of bargains while they're there. They're, maybe they're doing, uh, you know, last minute shopping or whatever it is. The mm-hmm. point is, um, they're not as careful uh, and as wary as they usually are. And so we see this every year around the holidays. A bunch of these websites pop up. A they look great. They have all the things that everybody wants, and they're like you know, uh, half the price of everybody else. <laughs> and very quickly they get tens of thousands of people giving their credit cards away, you know, expecting these things to show up before Christmas. And uh, usually what happens is they take your credit card and they go away after <laughs> a few weeks. Uh, I, I don't know what's worse, you know, having to deal with, with all the, you know, getting a new, getting a new credit card and, 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 uh-huh. and dealing with the fraudulent charges, particularly if it's a debit card mm-hmm. for crying out loud. Um, or, Finding out a few days before Christmas that all the stuff you ordered, you thought you ordered, isn't going to come. <laughs> you know, so. Uh, can you give me an example about a, a fake website that you've seen in the past pop up around this time? Uh, they're not. They're they're actually not that hard to find. And one of the one of the ways that you find them is you start searching for brand names uh, that are very hot, very popular brand names, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's clothing or technology. Um, Typically, these guys, uh, the, these fake stores will target high-end clothing and high-end electronics uh, for obvious reasons, right? They're looking for uh, – if, if you're going to have – if you're only going to have one transaction with them, they want it to be a high-dollar uh, transaction. Right. Uh, very often, um, um, these things are uh, not on the front page of the results, but sometimes they are. And uh, you may you, – you've never heard of them before. You mm-hmm. don't know anything about this company. Uh, they they may have just copied everything from a legitimate company and, and changed the names and such. And and in many cases, they have. They just copied the inventory and all the pictures and everything from another site, and they just put it up on their site. But the big giveaway for these things is they have almost always all just been registered, right? The domain name for them is brand new. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is a very simple thing that people can do uh, around this time of year if they're bargain shopping and they're the kind of person who who's just going to buy it from the lowest price place they can find online, which is generally not a good idea. But uh, if, if, if you're that type of person, I would say make sure you look up the registration records of the domain that you want to buy from. Interesting. Because you you might find, you know, go to whois.net and just pop in the domain name. You might find something interesting which is that it was just registered in the last few weeks. And if that's the case, run away. So that's a really good one, Brian. Um, short of going and looking up the domain name registration, which is something that, uh, you know, I, I think of uh, my my parents, I, I don't really see them <laughs> being likely to do that, even if they know it's a good step to take. Are there any other red flags that people can look out for to make sure that they're buying from a legitimate seller online? I mean... You know, honestly, I always tell people to stick to the stick to the stores that you know. Um, that's the safest way. Other other things, good gracious, don't use a debit card for buying the stuff online. Um, yeah, if you talk to Visa and Mastercard and the card issuers, they'll say, you know, you got nothing to worry about. We have these, you know, zero loss guarantees on on debit cards, just as much as we do for regular credit cards, and that's true. However. If you're using your debit card and it gets stolen or somebody makes a clone of it because you used it in a store that was hacked, um, it, it's probably going to take a few days for your bank to, to sort out uh, the good from the bad. Uh, and meantime, if your checking account's cleaned out, 
that kind of stinks. So it seems like we have an issue with media literacy or internet literacy, whereas people might encounter a website that they think is legitimate, but it's not. Um, and, you know, there are ways of, of, of knowing that you're encountering that website, if, if it's something that you're familiar with or not, if it's some random domain name that was just purchased or, or, or some site that looks like it was just thrown up last week, then, then maybe don't <laughs> buy it from there. Uh, you're saying also there's a timing issue with credit cards. So uh, that time that it takes to process the transaction actually gives you a layer of security and that you're, they're not going to be able to drain your bank account. Uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm curious also about uh, breaches. And, you know, it's not just uh, things that, you know, users can do to be due diligent when it comes to purchasing things online. But it seems that companies mess up a lot too. Yeah, certainly some of the bigger hacks that, that we've seen, uh, say, in a, at a retail level happen around the holidays. Um, and I don't think that's an accident. I mean, if you, if you were trying to break into the credit card processing systems for a major retailer, what better time to do that would be or then would be around uh, Black Friday, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that's exactly what happened at Target a few years ago. Uh, they pulled the trigger. They got inside Target a few weeks before uh, Black Friday, but then they, they pulled the trigger uh, and started sucking down card data from all the uh, people coming to the store on Black Friday. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. Um, certainly their retailers face a huge uh, challenge in, in um, fighting all kinds of fraud, not just cyber fraud. But uh, I don't know that this is something that is, you know, it's kind of in the purview of your average, you know, shopper. I mean, I don't know what they're supposed to do about that or, or, you know, know what to do or what not to do. I mean, <laughs> I, I, honestly, I kind of stick to the companies that have been breached already because maybe they have a slightly more clue than the ones that haven't. So I'm curious, if you learn that you shopped at a store that was a victim of a breach, I mean, that's kind of like walking down the street. It happens to everybody. What do you do? How does this affect you? I... <laughs> It depends. I mean, it depends on what the what the store is, what you're buying, uh, how so say you it's buy. Best it. buy. Uh, okay, so not some sex toys shop or something like that. Sure. <laughs> yeah, the place that you wouldn't be necessarily embarrassed to walk in and out of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's say it's Best Buy. Uh, what's what's the really if you're doing if you're doing all the things right? You know, you're using your credit card instead of your debit card. Uh, you're keeping an eye on your statements, uh, which you should do religiously, whether or not it's the holidays. But even more so in mm-hmm. the holidays, right? Because if you're gonna, if you were gonna cram through a whole bunch of fraudulent charges on credit cards, when would you do it? Right around the holidays, of course, because that's when everybody's like massively using their cards. Mm-hmm. Um, I do. I, again, I don't know what the what the takeaway is for the for the shopper because either you recognize the fraud and and or they do, or your credit card company or your bank does, or you don't. But somebody's got to, and very often. You know, that falls down to the cardholder. Mm-hmm. So, um, and by the way, a lot of these fraudulent transactions, they, they, some of the fraudsters are really good about keeping them low. Uh, we're like talking low purchases. a few dollars. Okay. Yeah, a few dollars. Uh, and, but they do it, you know, a few hundred thousand times. Wow. And, uh, you know, it, it kind of adds up, especially the lower amounts tend to be overlooked a lot more than, say, you know, a random $129 charge on your credit card. All right, Brian, this has been great. I have one last big picture question for you. So we live in a time now when it feels like, you know, we've all been hacked in one way or another. Even if we haven't been hacked personally, some company that we do business with has been hacked and our information has been compromised. Um, 
Is is this just, I mean, do you see that state of affairs changing anytime soon? Is it going to get even worse before it gets better? Uh, and is there any hope for a world in which we, we don't live with the expectation that, that some company somewhere is, as we speak, getting hacked and, and uh, coughing yeah. up our data? Yeah. No, it's a good question. And, and it's it's actually something that uh, I, I spend a lot of time uh, talking to corporate executives about. You know, I, I, I do quite a lot of public speaking mm-hmm. and very recently – uh, kind of my spiel has been, hey, assume you're compromised uh, at a corporate and a personal level, because near as I can tell, are. I mean, when you look at the data about yourself that you might think is uh, private data or personal data, name, date of birth, social security number, mother's maiden name, address, previous address, phone number, all this stuff that that you might consider uh, personal to you is is not personal anymore. It's been breached 50 times over. And more importantly, it's for sale on just about most Americans out there today in the cybercrime underground. If I want to get it, I can get it mm-hmm. uh, for a few bucks. So, um, you know, my advice to individuals is the same as it is for people who run companies, which is to say, if you don't, if you don't, if you're not constantly assuming that uh, either A, somebody already has your data or somebody already has access to your data or see they're already inside your systems, then you don't have a prayer mm-hmm. in stopping these intrusions before they metastasize into a much bigger problem. And, you know, so this goes to things like, you know, placing a freeze on your credit file with the major bureaus to, uh, you know, just if at a corporate level, you know, paying people to patrol the inside of your network on a 24-7 basis uh, looking for uh, intruders. And not just assuming that it, you know all the tens of millions of dollars you spent on security is going to keep the bad guys out, because it's not. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's a long-winded answer to your question, but um, I, there's there there is no light at the end of the tunnel that I can see that that these that these breaches at a personal and a and a corporate level are going to let up anytime soon. You know, and I'm I'm just starting to wonder more and more if the personal identifiable information that we use to authenticate to our banks that it's really us or, or you know, in any sort of transaction when we say our social security number or anything like that to say that it's us, if, if that's no longer a, a worthwhile authentication method. It's absolutely not. I've been saying this for years uh, because of the reasons I just described mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. All this information is either breached or for sale or both. Um, it's really irresponsible of, of say, banks to when you, say, call in and, and uh, maybe you want to move money or you just want your balance and they say, okay, what's the last for you for social and your date of birth? That's completely unacceptable. Um, and so, you know, I, I've, I've encouraged uh, people to say, hey, look, you know, this is uh, when, they, when they interact with their bank to say, hey, this, it's not okay for you to verify me this way. Mm-hmm. Is there another, th- is there something else you can do? You know, and, and, and I've, I've encouraged people, hey, put a, you know, put a verbal password on your account um, and, and test your bank. Call in, see if they'll let you get into your account without giving them that. Because if they can, maybe you should take your money somewhere else. Um, you're right, it's, it's, it's irresponsible and it's, uh, it's, an, it's way outdated uh, uh, given all the data that's out there and how easy it is to get this and how cheap it is to get it. Um, but yeah, you, you, I think most banks and org- organizations kind of missed the memo on this. I mean, it's still the de facto way that people are authenticated online is, you know, cough up all this static information about yourself. Well, that's not real useful anymore. <laughs> 
thank you so much for for these uh, really incredible tips, none of which I would have been able to even imagine giving people. So uh, it's been great to have you. Uh, and uh, and hopefully uh, our listeners can stay safe out there as they make all of their holiday purchases. Yeah, I appreciate your having me on, April. Uh, happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. Thanks, Brian. All right, we'll take one more quick break, and then when we come back, we'll have Don't Close My Tabs, some of our favorite things we saw on the internet this week. bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos, but it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks and automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations so you can be ready for the next opportunity revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. It's time again for Don't Close My Tabs. Will, what could you not close this week in your internet browser? All right, my tab this week was from The Daily Beast. The headline is, CEO of HQ, the hottest app going. If you run this profile, we'll fire our host. Now, there's sort of a lot to unpack here. First of all, you need to know that HQ Trivia is this uh, it's the smartphone app on which people play real-time trivia games all across the country. Uh, it happens at a set time. It's 9 p.m. Eastern every weeknight. I think it's 3 p.m. on weekends. It's really popular right now. People are loving it. There is a virtual host for these these quiz shows uh, who goes by the name of Scott. He's a sort of cult figure. And the Daily Beast reporter Taylor Lorenz uh, had had gotten an interview with Scott and was going to do this sort of lighthearted profile. So she interviews him. Uh, she starts doing the profile. The interview goes great. Everything's good. She sends an email to uh, HQ Trivia's press department. And the next thing she knows, the CEO of HQ Trivia is firing back an angry email saying that he was not making Scott available and she was unauthorized to talk to him. And then he started saying, he started making threats that if she actually printed this this stuff that was in the interview, that he would fire Scott as the host, uh, oh the, the CEO unintentionally, <laughs> yeah, he unintentionally disclosed in the process that Scott was not even a full-time employee. Um, he went nuts about the fact that like Scott had mentioned he likes sweet green salads and the CEO is saying he can't say that we don't have a brand mer- a you know loser. we don't have a brand deal with yeah <laughs> and, so, and so the so the reporter who is now my hero um Taylor Lorenz goes and prints the whole thing including everything the CEO told her not to say um hopefully this does not mean that Scott gets fired it probably does mean that a lot of people are now disillusioned about this oh this beloved app that they're all playing okay psa uh if i'm interviewing you and we don't say off the record it's on the record just so everybody knows that that's why Taylor was able to to share that it was a great story i i cannot wait to read it i haven't had a chance to yet but i'm glad to hear the preview All right. So April, what's your tab this week? My tab this week was a story from The Atlantic uh, called The Making of an American Nazi on Andrew Aglin. And and Andrew Aglin uh, is the founder of the neo-Nazi website, The Daily Stormer, where they unite the right rally. 
was organized, and and that's the rally that happened in Charlottesville at the beginning of August. Um, and it's a it's a really long, really important profile to read, um, and it really again shows kind of the centrality of technology to building this alt right neo Nazi uh, white nationalist movement that we're starting to now see spill onto the streets, but actually was online for quite some time. So I, I really recommend people. Take a look at this and really look at this one person who ran this internet hub for so long and, and, and kind of his struggle to also keep the hub going after the, after the Charlottesville rally. Yeah, and this touches on a big theme in your reporting, April, which, which is the idea that that it actually tech has really enabled this rise of the alt right, um, which is something I didn't, I hadn't really thought about before. But you know, but it is kind of true the way these online communities are, are able to foster views and mentalities that are not acceptable in in uh, you know mass culture or public spaces. Yeah, you know, um, a lot of these guys don't feel comfortable going out into the street and saying like, hey, I'm a big racist or I believe in Nazism. But they'll they'll say it, you know, on message boards and online forums, you know, behind a screen name. Uh, you know, now we see that they're a bit more emboldened to go out into the street and, and maybe meet each other and organize, which is a terrifying prospect in terms of trying to, uh, you know, prevent hate crimes in the United States. But uh you know, everyone from uh, from Dylan Roof to, to Anders Breivik and people who commit these horrible hate crimes, they use Stormfront, which is a, another Nazi website. And and so we, we definitely, as we, we, we look at the uh, hate crimes that have happened in recent years, uh, they, they usually do have an online connection. And, and this article was really illuminating in terms of understanding the people that are behind those forums. Well, that's our show. You can get updates about what's coming up next week by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod. And you can follow me and Will on Twitter as well. I'm at April Laser, And I'm at Will Remus. Thanks again to our guest, Brian Krebs, for joining us. You can find him on Twitter at Brian Krebs. The last name is spelled K-R-E-B-S. And if you have a question or a comment for us, you can email as well at ifthen at slate.com. If Then is a product of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer is Max Jacobs. We do have a favor to ask of our listeners. If you like this show, please, please, please go to iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen. Leave us a review. I know you're super busy. It would do us a lot for helping to get the word out about the show, and we would really appreciate it. And also thanks to Robert Kirby at Fantasy Studios here in Berkeley. Thanks to Don Aulis and A Room with a VU Studio in Santa Barbara. Our awesome theme music is provided by Doug Chase. We will see you next Wednesday. Bye! For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.